Welcome to the Modern Law Library. Today, my guest is Amy Werbel, the author of the book Lust on Trial, Censorship and the Rise of American Obscenity in the Age of Anthony Comstock. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's great to be here. So as the title may have tipped off our listeners, we're going to be discussing obscenity laws and the items and books and art that launched different obscenity trials. But this is really focused on the work of Anthony Comstock. Can you please tell us a little bit both about who Anthony Comstock is and how you came to write about him? Sure. Anthony Comstock was born in New Canaan, Connecticut in 1844. He died in New York City in 1915. And during his lifetime, he was a committed evangelical who was devoted to the idea that lust would lead people to sin and then they would burn in the fires of hell. And he very much wanted to save souls through censorship. And during the course of his lifetime, he was able to come into contact with like-minded, wealthy and powerful men in New York City. And together they formed organizations and were really able to change the American legal system to make that mission thrive during the course of his lifetime. I became interested in Anthony Comstock because of my work as an art historian. I wrote my dissertation and first book on the artist Thomas Akins, who was from Philadelphia. And he was kind of a libertine in the sense that he flouted conventions and norms regarding the use of the nude, both in studying art and uh, in, you know, his painting practice. And so he ran into a lot of difficulty in Philadelphia. He was eventually fired from his teaching position at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. And as I was studying all of that history, Anthony Comstock's name was sort of floating out there. It was like trustees would mention him. They were worried about him. Clearly, people felt that they had liability on the basis of Comstock and Comstock laws. And so when I started to dig a little bit deeper into who he was and what those were, I realized that this was actually a very big story about the effects of Comstock's work and the obscenity prosecutions in the period that he was active between 1873 and 1915. And the story hadn't been told before. So I spent the last 10 years basically walking in Comstock's shoes. I took the arrest blotters that record every single person that he prosecuted and the materials that he seized and in most cases destroyed. And uh, I made a huge database and then I set out to find a lot of that stuff. So the mission really was to uncover the history that he had managed to suppress and then also to look at the way Americans responded in this period of time in which they were, you know, more heavily censored than in in any other moments of our history. So that's kind of a nutshell overview. So I'd like to kind of ground our listeners in what American life and popular American culture and art looked like in the post-Civil War era when Anthony Comstock was first entering into kind of adult life and professional life and starting off on this crusade of his to suppress vice. What were the kinds of things that he looked around and thought, vice, vice must be suppressed? Yeah. Well, there were 
you know, vast differences between what was seen publicly and then what was circulated privately. And it's important to understand that there were some obscenity laws on the books that had been passed in 1842 and in 1865 and in 1868, but there was really no mechanism for enforcement. So the things that circulated privately, as you might expect, included erotic prints and books uh, with, you know, sexually explicit stories and images. And of course, there was lots and lots of photographic pornography, images of explicit sexual acts. These were often advertised in newspapers. They might be called things like gay French photos from life, you know, beautiful girls, something like that. So throughout the country, you know, the U.S. mails were the vehicle through which these materials were disseminated and even arrived in little places like New Canaan, Connecticut, where Anthony Comstock was raised in a, you know, a devout congregationalist family. These were the descendants of the Puritans. They were the purest of the pure. But he writes about the fact that even in his little, you know, farm town, there were materials that were circulating, and he saw some of these, and they were horrible, and they led boys to ruin. So there was all that that circulated, you know, through the mails, and that will become the target of his work uh, later on. Publicly, the nude had really not been seen very much in American art because of this sort of lingering ethos of, of Puritanism that really had pervaded the country from its origins. And what happened, starts to happen in the post-Civil War era is that collectors of art grow in number and they also grow in wealth. This is the period of time when these sort of vast fortunes are made and there's no income tax. People have a lot of money and wealthy people start traveling to Europe and they start bringing home lots of painted nudes, especially from France. You know, these paintings are very popular in Paris, and so you show your, you know, your wealth and taste by bringing home celebrated works. So nudes actually start to fill up the salons in people's homes, their picture galleries, and this is also a period of time when, you know, the great American museums are founded in the 1870s. So the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and, you know, really in, in major cities, these paintings start to be kind of on display. So there's, that's where we start to get a huge class distinction as well. Comstock is never going to go after expensive paintings because the people who back him are kind of of that class. And so there are limitations on what he goes after that ascribe to sort of economic and political realities. So that's really the landscape that he walks into. And then as he's trying to round up, you know, mostly what circulates privately, and then as he goes on and gets more power, he starts to go after sort of more middle class or upper middle class examples of uh, art that has nudity in it. But the visual culture keeps changing and, you know, adding new technologies and new methods of, you know, dissemination. And so he's really pretty, he's fighting a losing battle the entire, you know, course of his career, despite, you know, attaining a huge amount of power through legislation and changes in courtroom procedures and all that. So I think that it's a great place to start with, you know, what is it that was out there that he was trying to round up? And his arrest records prove that there, there was just a huge amount of erotic material circulating privately. And then during the course of his life, you know, the reason the, the subtitle of the book is The Rise of American Obscenity is that 
even though he's, you know, burning millions of things, the work that's publicly on display just keeps getting ratcheted up in terms of its level of explicit display of human anatomy. So you mentioned the power that he achieved. But let's ground our readers in exactly what we're talking about. Anthony Comstock was not elected to any office. He used to be a dry goods salesman. So he was basically a dry goods salesman from Connecticut who moved to New York City. And then he gained the power to arrest people, to bring them to trial, to ruin lives and careers and destroy literal tons of books and art and, as he would say, you know, things like plastic objects. (laughs) Rubber goods. (laughs) Not plastic yet, but lots of rubber. Lots of rubber goods. Yeah. So what precise position did he hold that he was able to do this? That's a great question. He started out as a vigilante, so he had no authority whatsoever. And this was really, again, his personal passion to clean up vice and save souls. And he's doing things like grabbing, you know, boys who are selling, you know, baskets of dirty pictures on the streets in New York City. He would bring them to the police station and then express his absolute disgust when the police would just sort of let the perpetrator go or maybe take a cut of the money that the kid had. He tried to close saloons that were operating on Sundays in violation of the law. And again, the police were completely uninterested in prosecuting those cases. So, you know, he's very frustrated. He's down at the municipal prison, and a police officer says, you know, he had heard that the um, men up at the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, New York City branch, had also been trying to do something about this uh, pernicious literature, as it was called. And in fact, the YMCA had been holding meetings about obscene literature they had formed a standing committee, or the special committee, excuse me, in 1868, and they had been researching ways to try to clean up the area around their branches to protect young men from these materials. But they really didn't have a person who could go into these layers of, you know, pornographers, these publishers in Lower Manhattan. These men were way too high class and. This, you know, and they had regular um, positions as attorneys and bankers and that sort of thing. And so Comstock goes up to the YMCA and, you know, leaves a sort of letter. And within a week, Morris Jessup, who was the, you know, leader of this special committee, shows up at the dry goods store and hires Comstock to work full time as a vice fighter for the YMCA. And they begin to catalog. Comstock is very good at accounting for the materials that he sees, and he's really learning to use investigative techniques. So if he'd, you know, catch the boy on the street, he'd say, where did you get that? He would follow the clues back to the producers. And so he's able to start building these narratives of all this material and the gentlemen of the this YMCA committee use those accounts in special reports to get money. So they're raising money, and using this money, they're paying Comstock salary, and they send him to Washington, D.C. in late 1872 to lobby for a federal statute, which is an amendment to the U.S. Postal Codes, which will make it illegal to transport 
any materials through the U.S. mails that are deemed to be obscene. And also, of course, it can't be bought or sold or traded, but because it's a federal law, this power really applies to the District of Columbia and territories. But it's getting at that whole, that whole trade of rubber goods and printed materials that are going out from New York through the U.S. mail throughout the country. So that law is passed, and it lists for the first time, there had been, as I mentioned, some previous obscenity laws, but this bill is vastly expanded and includes, for the first time, birth control and abortifacients, which had not been specifically enumerated before this period of time. And in Comstock's mind, birth control and abortifacients allow you to not suffer the consequences of your sin. And so it all goes together, that pornography arouses lust, and then people satisfy that lust, and then if they don't have the consequences of pregnancy or venereal disease, then they're just encouraged to, you know, have more of these sort of illicit, immoral affairs. So the postal code, this law for the postal code, also at that same time, the post office hires Comstock to be an inspector. So he now has federal authority as an inspector for the U.S. Postal Service. So then in 1874, this special committee left the YMCA and incorporated in the state of New York. And in the act of incorporation in the state of New York, this private evangelical vice-fighting organization was given a really a broad authority by the state of New York, and the language says that the police must assist the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice uh, in carrying out its mission. So, you know, what you see early on is this basically, this language basically forces the police to at least make arrests at the direction of Comstock, who is the secretary for the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. So that's where he has both federal authority and authority in New York State, then the Comstock laws, those are called mini-Comstock laws, modeled on the federal language and the New York State language begin to get passed all over the country. And Comstock spent the first decades of his career traveling all over, going to legislatures. He would always carry suitcases of pornography and sex toys and birth control with him to show to the legislators. And these, you know, horrors would convince them to pass these laws, often with no debate. So that's basically how he gains power. And the people who back him are quite wealthy. And the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice really brings in a lot of money that they are, you know, able to use to advance their cause. So as you describe, you know, at the beginning, he's, he's a vigilante trying to do citizens' arrests and the police don't really pay attention to him. And then he's able to pass this massive federal law. And, you know, these pieces of legislation are getting passed everywhere. How does the legal community respond initially? Because you do mention in the early years after this was first passed, it seems like most judges and juries basically see him as a busybody and he's not as successful as he is then later able to be. So can you talk a little bit about the journey that the legal community went on from the very beginning of Comstock's crusades through the middle and then kind of the end of his life and career? Yeah, it's it's really a remarkable story because what it demonstrates is this underlying libertarianism, this strain in American 
courts and amongst lawyers. You know, at the beginning when, you know, these laws are passed, police and judges and juries are just really uninterested in using the courts to enforce morals. And a lot of his earliest cases, Comstock writes these lengthy notes in his arrest blotters about how outraged he is that these people who are obviously peddling pornography are just let off the hook over and over and over again. And this really persists for about the first five years of his career. And then he starts to get some traction around the late 1870s. So this is definitely a kind of a rise and fall story. Where we begin, he's mostly just bringing people into courts and they're getting let off. But in 1878, he is really focused on atheists who he refers to as blasphemers and infidels. Uh, But there's a large group of atheists in New York City and New York State, Western Massachusetts, and many of them are also advocates of free love. And so they write these pamphlets, these tracts that they're printing and disseminating that are really advocating that men and women have equal rights to sexual pleasure and to choose the partners that they love. Some of these tracts refer to marriage as a form of sexual slavery. For Comstock, this is all, you know, just an an atrocious uh, assault on God's laws and on the natural order, which for him is patriarchy. And in 1878, he's able to get a conviction against D.M. Bennett, who's a very well-known freethinker, and it's upheld in the New York State Court of Appeals. And so at that moment in time, the judge uses an English ruling called the Hicklin test, which is a very sweeping test of obscenity that's basically anything that has a tendency to arouse improper passions in people who would be subject to those passions. So now we're going to get rid of any kind of intent or context or discussion about the modes of production or distribution. Is is it for scientists? Is it for doctors? Is it for health reasons? None of that is really, you know, pertinent to this specific language of the Hicklin test, which, as I said, came from an English court ruling. So when that's upheld in the New York State Court of Appeals, Comstock literally has that printed up over and over and over again. And he goes around New York and other states as well, delivering, like if he sees a a postcard in a shop window that has, you know, bloomers in it or, you know, actresses in tights or something like that, he's delivering these pamphlets all over and saying, if you don't take that out of your window or if you don't stop selling that, you know, here's the test of obscenity and, you know, I'm going to be back the next day. And that's when, you know, with the Hicklin test using that language and the fact that it's been upheld, he does start to get lots and lots of convictions. In many cases, they are, you know, loss of stock, which is, you know, a definite detriment. Maybe not that much fine, maybe not that much prison sentence. But as we get into the the 1880s, he's definitely, you know, much more successful in the court's What also happens at this time is that defense attorneys who hadn't, you know, there wasn't really like a, you know, there's no First Amendment bar. The First Amendment is not incorporated to the states until after Comstock's death, well, after his death. But, uh, you know, defense attorneys had not been used to defending clients in obscenity cases until there start to be hundreds of them. And the first organization of defense attorneys to focus on these targets of Comstock cases 
is formed in 1878. That's the National Defense Association. And these are attorneys who, you know, support free thinking. They support science over religion. They are very much focused on improving the rule of law in the United States. And so they really start to kind of build a practice that is, you know, very, you know, at least when you read the you know, speeches that they were giving in court and when you look at the tactics that they were using, there were a lot of really smart attorneys who get up to speed rather quickly on on defense procedures in these cases. And that that is going to lead to the formation of the First Amendment bar as we know it really beginning in the 1890s, around the turn of the 20th century. And I found it interesting. This also, it seems to me, helped develop some legal theories and thinking about entrapment. Because what Anthony Comstock would do would be, you know, he would see, say, a newspaper advertisement saying, write here for a pamphlet about your wedding night. And so he would write and, and say, please send me this pamphlet to this address. And they would send that pamphlet. And then he would arrest them for sending him the pamphlet that he has them to send him. And some other defense arguments were, why should my client be suffering when Anthony Comstock was also violating the law by asking for this material to be sent? So I, I really found that interesting. What were some of the more successful theories eventually that the defense attorneys were raising that helped get their clients off? I would say that over a period of time, what, you know, defense attorneys are able to insist on expertise in the judgment of obscenity. I would say big picture, that's the most effective thing that they do. They complain about a lot of things. They complain about spying and surveillance. So when Comstock would order something through the mail, he would always use a fake name, but then he would you know, go to the post office and watch who collected the mail from that post office. And, you know, that was, would lead him back to the, you know, the pornography producer. So, you know, people complain about that kind of, you know, spying. They definitely complain about the slippery slope argument that, especially as we get into the 1880s and 1890s, he is increasingly seizing things that juries really just don't feel are all that filthy. Let's talk about the juries really quickly, because Comstock held the opinion that he should be able to go to court, tell the jury what I found was obscene, but I'm not going to show it to you because it's obscene. So I can't show it to you, but it is obscene. Right. And his argument was that it would harm the jurors, right? He's trying to prevent men from, and boys and women, girls, from seeing these images that he believe will sit forever in this chamber of sin within their heart. And that once you've seen these things, you can never get them out of your mind. He says this over and over and over again. And that it leads people down this path eventually to hell. So that's his argument. And judges at the beginning, you know, again, there's no procedure. There's no precedent. In most cases, the judge sort of goes along with the idea that, you know, Comstock has seen these things and he attests that they are, you know, arousing improper passions. And oftentimes the judge isn't even looking at the evidence. And you can see in his arrest blotters, 
the Comstock often destroyed the evidence even before the trial happened because he would record, you know, he would weigh the stuff and he would burn it in the incinerator of the American Tract Society or if they were engraved plates, he would take them and they'd be weighed and melted down. So what happens, the really big picture legal thing that happens is that he's the only person who has expertise to judge obscenity in the 1870s. And over the course of his career, attorneys begin to, they keep bringing witnesses, expert witnesses to trial. In many cases, the expert witnesses are not allowed to testify. In some cases, in the 1870s and 1880s, judges say, well, okay, the expert witness can talk, but it's not going to go into the record. And I'm going to basically instruct the jury that they don't have to take this expert witness testimony into account. But in a lot of cases, the expert witnesses never even speak in the 1870s and 1880s. And the defense attorneys just keep hammering away at the fact that Comstock doesn't know anything about art. In fact, there's even like a a kind of a joking, we would call it like a Kickstarter campaign, but they're trying to, they keep joking that they're going to raise money to send Comstock to Europe to see art so that it will, you know, get some knowledge of what it is that he's doing. And his credibility is attacked in multiple ways. Artists caricature him mercilessly. Newspapers, which have lost a lot of revenue because their advertisements are all illegal, they lampoon him, you know, especially starting in the 1880s, and then it just gets worse and worse throughout his career. And so, you know, over time, they really managed to make him kind of into a a knucklehead figure. You know, he is a busybody. He's but he also doesn't know anything, and that leads judges to eventually allow more and more expert testimony. And that testimony is necessarily bringing in issues like intention and context and looking at the entire work of art and literature and thinking about it in the context of other works of art. You know, how is it any more explicit than this other thing and the other thing and the other thing? And so that By the time Comstock dies in 1915, the court cases are much fuller in discussing the content of the work of art and allowing more people to weigh in. And absolutely, the juries are seeing the evidence. You know, by 1915, defense attorneys have really managed to convince judges that a defendant cannot be judged by his or her peers unless the peers can really evaluate what exactly they did. And without being able to see the materials, that judgment is really impossible. So that's the big picture concept that happens in these trials playing out. And, you know, a lot of those transformations really get discussed in the, you know, tremendous judicial decisions of the 20th century, but the concepts are already developing through the course of resistance to Comstock censorship campaigns. And you even, I'm sorry, I don't remember which case it was, but you mentioned at one trial, the after you know Comstock is forced to present the work of art or the book that he was attempting to have someone sentenced to hard labor for publishing, the assistant DA stood up and said, essentially, now that I've seen this, this is absolutely art and not obscenity. And it would be terrible if we were to convict the person that I am prosecuting. 
Yeah, that was actually the case of six photography dealers in Philadelphia. And that was a case in the mid-1880s. And, you know, Philadelphia was much more liberal on these issues than New York City. And I think a lot of that has to do with the religious traditions. Quakers were far more open. They were far more kind of dedicated to science. And also there was more of a tradition of a connection between Philadelphia and France, whereas the people who are really involved in supporting the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice in New York and many of the judges who were involved in cases came from Connecticut, which was very much like a congregational stronghold, you know, with an evangelical focus. So, you know, this trial really makes sense in the context of Philadelphia that the judge was very skeptical. What the photographers had been selling were photographs that were produced in France for the use of artists, and they were nude figures, full frontal nudity, in poses resembling classical sculptures. And the reason these were very popular for artists was because it was expensive to pay models to pose. And so these photographs, even though they were pretty pricey, they were much cheaper than paying that hourly wage to a nude model. So in the course of the trial, the assistant district attorney stands up and says, I haven't spoken to my boss, but I think he would agree with me that we are not going to make a case in favor of prosecuting these defendants. Comstock had come down to New York and basically made these arrests in the context of his authority as a postal service official. And these Philadelphia prosecutors, you know, this one in particular, made this very impassioned argument that art required study of the nude and that he didn't think that artistic study should be limited in the United States. And he also said that God made humans in his image and the beauty of the body, therefore, you know, must be acceptable to God in some way. And you can also see in a lot of art that is favored by Catholics that there's nudity in that art. So he's really making a very kind of nuanced argument while doing this extraordinary thing of basically saying, I'm not going to stand here and recommend a prosecution of these defendants. And, and the judge agreed with him and basically threw the case out. Comstock continued to try to prosecute these photographers, but he had no luck. And again, this is where you get those annotations in his arrest record that he's absolutely outraged, you know, and that, you know, he was humiliated. And, you know, by, again, starting around that period of time, mid to late 1880s, we start to see more of those cases where Comstock's credibility is really brought into question and where judges and juries are far more interested in supporting what is kind of vaguely called the liberties of the citizen. You know, they're not discussing the First Amendment, but they are discussing the, the idea that the rights of citizens should not be abrogated, and particularly by this sort of private vice-fighting organization. That's another thing that lawyers and judges increasingly have a hard time with. Uh, and they want to see the police initiate prosecutions and not the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. After Comstock's death, because he was a very singular individual, was that position that he had held continued? And if so, for how long? John Saxon Sumner takes over for Comstock at the time of Comstock's death in 1915. He had been brought on board a couple of years earlier. The society was in a lot of economic 
difficulty. And as I mentioned, Comstock had really been lampooned and caricatured and donations had dwindled. And so John Sexton Sumner, who was quite young at that time, was brought on board. And he basically looked at what had been going on and realized that that more than anything else, Comstock had been advertising obscenity or what he considered to be obscenity because any time Comstock would go after something, the value of it would go through the roof. So if he threatened to shut down a theater production, you know, the tickets would, you know, triple in price and then be sold out and they would get a road show because, you know, people had a kind of a natural curiosity about seeing these things. And so Sumner really changed the methods of the organization to work with publishers, for example, or theater promoters to try to get material looked at quietly and approved by the society without, you know, getting into the newspaper. So that, you know, under his leadership, and it really does become kind of a one-man thing, the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice survives into the 1950s. But by that time, you know, they're really doing very little. And legally, they don't seem to have been very important at all after probably around the mid-1920s. And, you know, you spent 10 years, as you said, researching for this book, reading Comstock's personal writings. This is not directly a biography of him, but you must have, you know, formed opinions from reading what he wrote and what others wrote about him. You know, obviously, he had this drive. He had a singular focus. What was he like as a human being? You know, you mentioned he is married, but he does seem to alienate most people most of the time. You tell a story about, you know, he he goes to a barbershop that I thought was was kind of illustrative. Could you tell the barbershop story and then kind of what you... Yeah. This is the kind of thing that was in the newspaper all the time. And again, newspaper editors really hate him because he's he's very bad for I mean he's he's good for business in the sense that he you know, the stories about him are definitely uh you know, salacious and, and fun to read, but he's really hurt their advertising revenues and they're always looking for um, you know, moments in which they can lampoon him. So the story of the barbershop was that Comstock went in to have a shave and there was a photograph of an actress wearing tights and a short skirt and the Comstock said to the barber, you need to take that down. And the barber, you know, refused and Comstock threatened to prosecute him and the barber finally took the picture down and then told the newspaper reporter that if Comstock ever came back for a shave, he had basically, you know, like a 10-pound razor (laughs) to use on him. So it was basically like a vague threat of harm. And he was, you know, blackballed by the J.R. Post. He wanted to join clubs. He was, you know, the kinds of entertainments that most men engaged in were things that Comstock was prosecuting, even things as silly as, betting on how many pumpkin seeds were in a pumpkin. He would prosecute that kind of thing as a form of gambling when often these were just, you know, ways of raising money for, you know, a a school project or something like that. He'd go into candy stores and, um, you know, prosecute those, uh, you know, again, anything that resembled gambling. And, of course, he spent a lot of time prosecuting betting on racehorses and these sort of lotteries that circulated through the mails. And so... You know, men's clubs were just completely uninterested in having him as a guest. And a lot of men's 
social life in that period of time revolved around these sex-segregated environments. So either clubs or saloons, barbershops, these were where men hung out. They didn't really tend to hang out with their wives that much. And women had their own kind of sex-segregated spaces in which to socialize as well. So yeah, he wasn't a lot of fun. I've often thought, you know, well, what would it be like to have lunch or dinner with him? And I think it would have been pretty insufferable. He was really just full of himself, you know, never equivocated. There's no nuance in his worldview. I think you could have just guessed every response to any question you put to him. He was definitely not a great critical or inquisitive mind. So, yeah, I think he was a real, you know, as we've said a couple of times, he was he was a busybody. He was a moralist. He was self-important. And um, many people found him to be really unpleasant. To switch gears just a little bit, as you are putting together this book, which I have in hard copy, but it's also available as an ebook. So you're putting together Lust on Trial, and there are many images and plates in this book. And I believe it was, you know, it's to show people what were the kinds of images that were circulating. And it was interesting for me as a reader because you know, they do run the gamut from something that I look at and I say, absolutely, I, even as a modern reader, would look at that and say, if I saw that, I would categorize that as pornography to a woman who is covered in cloth, literally from her neck to her toes, but she is wearing tights. And, you know, all that fell under under Comstock's, you know, definitions of obscenity, including things like, you know, doctors giving information about anatomy and health and, you know, you just, it's a good, it's a good selection, I thought. But how did you go through and decide what you would use in the book and what you wouldn't, you know, as an art historian? It's a great question. I was very fortunate to find many examples of the things he suppressed. And part of what I wanted to do was to recover the visual culture and the kind of sexual culture of Americans in the period of time that he was active, because he certainly did remove a lot of things from circulation. But a lot of things survived and even in many cases were entered into the Library of Congress or, you know, repositories like the American Antiquarian Society and the Kinsey Institute, which had a lot of material. It was definitely a, uh, especially during the years that the Kinsey publications were on the bestseller list over and over again. People knew that if they found Grandpa's collection of, you know, photographs or whatever, if they had an antiquarian impulse and didn't want to destroy those, they would send them over to the Kinsey Institute. So I had a group of, you know, probably a couple hundred things that if, you know, if I could have published everything, it would have been nice. But then, you know, we had to make choices based on the amount of space and the amount of funds, especially for the color reproductions. And I wanted to give a good sampling to, you know, there are some things that were evidence in trials that show you exactly what was being debated in court. And there are other things that are good examples of the types of materials that circulated. For example, those artists' photographs that we were discussing a little while ago. And then there was a, you know, there was this general question of, you know, how obscene. And when I was thinking about that, I was really thinking a lot about, you know, the big picture of censorship. Censorship is a word that gets used to describe so many different processes and choices. And I knew that some of the images that I was putting in the book are pretty explicit, and it would probably lead people who taught, you know, maybe college 
first-year students or sophomores, you know, the, probably a lot of people wouldn't assign the chapters with those images to kind of younger undergraduates. But then at the other end, I also didn't want to be coy, and I didn't want to do my own version of, of comstockery by not showing the kinds of materials that were in circulation. So I was trying to make those choices and thinking about the fact that, you know, what some people might call self-censorship is often really just thinking about who your audience is and who your market is. And that's always true for artists, that they are making images that, you know, express a, you know, um, an attitude towards the body or towards the idea of conventions and norms. But they are also thinking about who their audience is. And so, you know, hopefully the you know, images that we selected, you know, as you said, you know, give you a good sense of, of the things that anybody now would agree were, you know, ridiculous, like actresses and tights, but also some things that cause us to maybe think, hmm, you know, maybe it wasn't such a terrible thing for that kind of image to be prosecuted. And, and part of that is to think about where we are now in relationship to this history and what are our individual choices shaped by. And probably they're still shaped by our attitudes towards gender and sexuality and religion and broadly the, you know, rights of citizens and artistic expression. So it's complicated stuff. And I wanted to put images in there that would allow a kind of a complex conversation to emerge as a result of really engaging the visual culture of that period of time. Well, Amy, as a final question, you know, you looked, of course, at Anthony Comstock, but you also did kind of a deep dive to find out in many cases, what happened to the people who were prosecuted under these laws? You know, there actually, there were at least a couple suicides, people sentenced to hard labor for, you know, 13 months or more, and people's businesses destroyed. And are there, you know, if you could think of, you know, one person who, when you were researching, really sticks out in your mind as someone who was on the other side of Comstock and what happened to them, who would it be? Yeah, well, I think, you know, somebody like Ezra Haywood, who's an old man when he's sent off to prison for hard labor, you know, it's that's really a sad story. And, and actually, probably the worst stories are the cases of homosexual defendants who get sentenced to basically it's life in a work camp, because often, even if it was 10 years at hard labor, but then it was with some ridiculous fine, like before they could leave prison, they would have to come up with $10,000 or something like that. The, the sentences for homosexual defendants were extraordinarily harsh and cruel. And so, I mean, that really struck me as being very sad and very poignant. But it, it speaks to the larger reality of Comstock censorship campaigns, which is that they reflected the prejudices of the time. You know, you see by the 1890s, he's recording these statistics on, you know, how many Jews and Irish and, you know, Catholic defendants in general that he's sending to prison. And the proportions are, you know, much higher for Jews and Catholics than they are for Protestants. And and the rhetoric of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice really becomes very anti-immigrant. You know, they're lobbying for, you know, restrictions on immigration of refugees. And so, you know, again, censorship then as now 
is always going to be sort of necessarily contingent because these decisions about what is obscene and what is too harmful are, you know, they're never clear cut. And so there's a lot of room there for the law to be applied in a way that unfairly discriminates against those who already are suffering from prejudice in American society. Well, Amy, there's plenty more in the book that we could get into, but if our listeners are interested in finding out more about you and your work and the book Lust on Trial, Censorship and the Rise of American Obscenity in the Age of Anthony Comstock, where could they go? Do you have a, a Twitter presence or, or any sort of social media or website they should know about? I have a website at lustontrial.com. Um, you could also find the book at Columbia University Press or on Amazon. And my Twitter handle is at awerbell. And uh, I try to get on there, <laughs> although I should do so more often. But yeah, and, and if any readers out there would like to get in touch with me and let me know your thoughts about the book, I'd really appreciate that. Well, thank you again, Amy Warbell, for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate and review in your favorite podcast listening service.